Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Benji. We are delighted also to have a, another third person, a wonderful person on the show with us this week, Katie Spellman, who is coming to us live from snowy Toronto, where it's also it's also snowing where I am, so it's a very exciting moment for all of us. Katie is a sports communications expert par excellence up there, working with such clients as Petra Kvitova, Simona Halep, and the Rogers Cup. Uh, and here to talk to us a bit about working in sports. So, Katie, thank you for being on here. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. It's nice to Spells. see you, too. You're one of the people like who we normally get to see during the year, and just to spend a year without seeing the, the traveling circus folk that we're usually used to spending all this time with. So it's nice, exactly. to, nice to reconnect in December. And I haven't seen anyone since Indian Wells. Were you in Indian Wells, Courtney? I didn't make it out there. No, I was in LA and then I, I had to shut it down and not make the trip out. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, I have not seen anyone for a very long time. Very long time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it is wild. Well, we're going to talk about something that seems a bit of an abstract concept at this moment in some ways in terms of not being on sports locations, but, but working in sports. Because Katie, you obviously have worked in sports for a long time and you are on your Instagram more recently highlighting a bunch of other people who work in sports and have somewhat different roles, usually on the media sort of side of sports in some way or another. Let me ask you your sort of classic opening question. Did you always know you wanted to work in, in sports? <laughs> I did, actually. Sport was always part of my life growing up. Um, I was any sport. Football, anything at the Olympics or Commonwealth Games, I would get up in the middle of the night to watch with my dad. Yeah, I, I would watch my brothers play football in the rain. I consumed it and I played it. I loved it. I played a lot of tennis. So yeah, I wanted to do something that involved my love of sport. I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but anything that involved sport. You know, you've had through your your career uh, up until now kind of been able to experiment with with um, and get experience in the different types of areas that that you can work in sports, you know, whether it was as a journalist, whether it was as a, a federation officer uh, at the WTA, which is how I got to know you and how Ben got to know you as well. And then now on the PR side, on the other side of the dais. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, you know, for people at home who want to pursue a similar trajectory as you like how what are the nuts and bolts of doing it what did you study what was your focus yeah. internships that sort of thing yeah so I um studied languages as well and I wanted to combine my love of communicating with people in as many languages as I could learn with sport and so journalism was kind of a natural fit for that because I thought I can speak to these athletes in their mother tongue and you know hopefully get something that that other journalists couldn't necessarily get. So I did work experience at so many different newspapers and I would email the sports editors of all of those newspapers just asking if I could come in, if I could have coffee. Um, and then I would eventually like collect enough bylines to put together a portfolio and I would send it to everyone. I was kind of relentless. <laughs> and looking back, I'm like, how did I have that energy and that drive? But I guess that's what you have at that moment in your career. Sure. Um, and that eventually translated into my first job in journalism. And it kind of went from there. When I had been, I'd been at the Times for a couple of years and I was editing the Wimbledon Supplement. And I met with someone from the WTA to talk about the Wimbledon Supplement. And at the end of the meeting, they said, you wouldn't be interested in a role at the WTA, would you? Knowing that I spoke these languages and that the communications role to traditionally had pe people with lots of languages. And I was like, oh my God, like, 
yes, I would be interested. Um, but I'm also in my dream job at the Times. It doesn't really get much better than this. So I had a really difficult decision to make whether I stayed in journalism or went to the dark side, as they call it. They always call it that. Exactly. And ultimately, like the thought of traveling 150 days a year, working with the top players in the sport that I had grown up absolutely in love with, like I couldn't turn it down. So it's something I want to ask both of you who have a riff on this, each of you, Courtney and Katie, like you both made this switch from being in independent publications and on the journalism side of things to working for both in this case, the WTA, which is a tour, which is a federation, a governing body, whatever you want to call it. Um, a league, and not exactly technically, but a league-ish entity. What did you feel like you were gaining? What did you feel like you were leaving behind making that sort of transition? That's something that more and more people are doing. And lots of people in the press room have various opinions about people who who consider that as Courtney knows well. So what do you, um, you know, just talk about that sort of, if it feels like a Rubicon that you're crossing, or, or if it feels like some sort of other big step that you're making from go to one, one end to the other. Katie, if you want to start off. Yeah, I, it's funny, when I was a journalist and I worked with PR people, I didn't necessarily have the deepest respect for <laughs> things. That fair, to totally get me fair. I'm trying to be really polite here. But some of the things that they were trying to encourage me to write about, and I didn't think they necessarily understood what it was like to be a journalist and what we wanted to write about and the stories that moved us and, and you know, made us, inspired us to write. So I actually felt that, that would be a really big help for the WTA if I understood what it was that journalists wanted to know about our players and the storytelling aspect. I'm, I'm still a journalist in a way. I'm still telling stories just on behalf of the players, very similar to what Courtney is now doing. So you're still very much thinking like a journalist, but actually being a lot more helpful because you're helping the journalist because you understand what they want to achieve. And you're also helping the player because you're helping them tell their story. So it's really a combination of the skills. Um, so that I think was what attracted me to going to the WTA and what I thought I could bring to the table. Yeah, I totally agree with Katie. I think that I think it's funny that the WTA clearly seems to have this thing in their DNA of because it was the same thing where I was work like I was at Sports Illustrated and like interviewing like Stacey McAllister or, you know, working with Kevin Fisher, you know, to like set up interviews and things. And then it just kind of evolved one day with like, you should come work for us. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I'm just trying to sit over here and do my job. So they have this tendency to just kind of flip those interviews the other way. But I agree with Katie. I think that there is there is no right or wrong answer um, in terms or like, you know, that one is better than the other. I think as I've always been very adamant about on NCR, like for me, I my interest is in there being a very healthy media ecosystem in tennis. That's the point. And that means that not everybody should be an access journalist. Not everybody should be an independent journalist. Not every, you know, like you need to have a balance because you need to have those people who can facilitate access and get one side of this, like one part of the story out sometimes. But you also need people who I think Ben would, I'd probably put in this, this category, who's, who's kind of willing to throw haymakers you know, and to really no, I mean, like you know, I know, I'm, in, I'm in laughing. This is, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I definitely fit that description. Yeah, sure. like in terms of of being able to keep the sport accountable and to yeah. keep you know players mm. and and um, government entities accountable. That's a healthy system if you have a proper balance of all that. I, when I was with Sports Illustrated, I was more of a storyteller than I was a journalist. I was not never out there breaking news. I was, I wouldn't model myself. I, I didn't do what Ben does, you know, and that was never what my mentality was because I just like to tell stories and I wanted. 
I was more of an evangelist than anything else. Yeah, you were I believed I believed in the product and I wanted to get other people excited about it. So for me to transition from being working for an independent outlet and then coming in with the WTN writing, that was just completely seamless. And and a lot of that is to the credit of the WTA, you know, in my conversations with Stacy at the time, with my conversations with Kevin, of making sure everybody kind of understood what I was coming in to do and what I was yeah. not coming to do, you know? And I, I think so. that took a while. Courtney, I can say from you know, firsthand experience working with you at the WTA, like they had never had a writer internally themselves like they had lots of communications managers around but no one like you who was brought in to write about the sport from an internal perspective kind of for me you know when when I had stories to tell from Simona or Petra and they were you know maybe difficult stories to tell or we wanted to tell them in a particular way suddenly we had you this incredibly valuable resource to go to because we knew that you were on their side um And at a time where, you know, you can put a statement out on Twitter, but it's not a big enough opportunity to to tell your, you know, what it is you're trying to say in enough detail. Like that was suddenly this other dimension to the WTA that you added. So really valuable. And yeah, I think I think it's great that you can do that for the player. And it's and it's tricky, though, because in order to in order to provide that service, because, again, what I do is a service to players, to the tour and to the tournaments. I I can't be seen as a complete and utter hack. I can't be seen yeah. as somebody who just writes sponsored content and fluff pieces and like whatever. You still have to kind of have that integrity. Otherwise, if a player gives you a story, it doesn't mean anything, right? Like, you know, it, it's just like, oh, okay, it, you might as well just put a statement out on Twitter, you know? And so it's, it's, again, it is a little bit of the balance of that, of like trying to obviously serve the player while at the same time, to serve the player means remaining distant a little bit of, you know, trying to keep still like a, a journalistic hat on um, mm-hmm. so that you're not just seen as a mouthpiece for player and tour, which I don't think that I am because. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely not. Yeah. That, that sort of mouthpiece. I guess that's what you both were sort of getting at when you said dark side. Is that you, you fair? Well, I think that every, you know, everybody looks at journalists and they think, oh, it's independent. You have to be able to say what you want to say. And now you're just going to be a paid hack and a mercenary and all that sort of stuff. And first of all, our good friend, Eleanor Preston, I remember saying this to her talking through the whole thing. And I was like, yeah, going to the dark side. And she's like, Courtney, there is no light side. (laughs) That's one way to look at it. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? You got a good point. Because going back to what Ben's kind of hinted at, in his initial prompt about what the reaction is in the press room mm-hmm. when um when I made the move anyway there was a lot of a con- lot of I don't know like unsolicited concern unsolicited criticism advice wrapped in mentorship advice of like you know you're you're selling out and there needs to be independent journalism and I would just flip it around and, like you're not independent like let's be clear here like you have everybody has connections you might have x like you know x agent in your pocket you are mm-hmm. never going to write crap about their player yeah to, you know so you're not independent either like it's not there is no that like eleanor said there there, there is no light side everybody's kind of got a little bit of tarnish you know and this is all happening at a time when journalism was changing so much anyway yeah and, you know the number of writers who were traveling around the world to cover women's tennis was dwindling you know uh, 
terrifying rate. So um, I feel like even in the last five years, you know, the number of people covering tournaments has, has reduced dramatically. And obviously COVID is going to exacerbate that. So yeah. actually often you're the only person in the press conference. And if you weren't there asking questions, we would have nothing. There would be no coverage. So yeah, I feel like those criticizing you for going to the dark side and not, you know, serving, you know, we're obviously wrong because you you have served the tennis community. Well, but that's the whole point is that like, you know, you get the criticism and then you also see the quotes that you generate yeah. form the basis of somebody else's story who didn't bother to go to the press conference that day, you know, decided exactly. to sit at their desk and play Minesweeper. I'm not mad. That's literally my job. That's what yeah, my job is. That to is do. your job. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a bit rich then to then like kind of hear the whispers and things like that. And it's like, all right, dude, then don't use my work. Like you do. do you go work then. It's fine. <laughs> That person doesn't usually play Minesweeper. I think it's usually like Bejeweled or something, but close enough. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I think it's cute that you think I'm talking about a singular person when I'm literally referencing there's many one, There's one avid avid gamer in, in the room who I'm, who, I'm, who I'm thinking of. Come on. Stop talking about Reem like that. Oh, it's definitely not Reem. Come on now. But okay. So one of the, so there's there's lots of different threads that you've talked about in your Best of Five series with these journalists and, and media people, Katie. One of the ones that, and get into a different orders, but one of the ones I found most interesting in Courtney's answer while we have her here too was the question of what attributes seem to be a success in the industry mm -hmm. and why and i thought courtney your answer to this and i can basically to paraphrase your answer and then if you want to rehash it both of you together being a, up on the technology was was a big part oh, of that was and, a really and sort good of answer. and sort of not making yourself obsolete you said courtney you said the tools we have are constantly evolving in exciting ways and if you stay comfortable in your zone you'll be overtaken by younger more agile talent Learn to edit audio and video, master photo editing, look into newsletters and streaming. You need to go where the audience and the athletes are, are to effectively tell your stories and gain traction. And I think that's another, that's something, I think we were the first sort of, of the modern iteration of like tennis podcasts that came out. And, we and did. bloggers. And, yeah. I mean, like, we, we, I mean, yeah. That speaks to our own experience, that answer, I feel like. Yeah. I think, I think that that's what I saw happening in real time for us at the time. I mean, Katie probably has a lot of insight into kind of what it looked like from the tour yeah. side at the time because you were at WT, you were at WTA yeah. when kind of Ben and I were babies. So, you know, the rise of bloggers. This was even very early on, even before really tennis Twitter was a thing, podcasting very early. I mean, I was podcasting with 40 Deuce like back in like 2008, 2009. Um, with a lot of nonsense but yeah just really the early wild wild west of sports like informal untrained sports commentary and reporting yeah yeah no uh, the WTA brought in a guy called Henning Lindblad we all thought he was absolutely bonkers because he suddenly was really interested in how many followers we had on Facebook and Twitter and started talking about numbers and and, and we were all there such traditionalists saying like what are you talking about and one, but, but obviously, you know, really interested in wanting to learn because we were moving in that direction. One of my roles is kind of a proactive picture on the communications team, which is basically, you know, going to newspapers and publications and selling the stories of, of our players. One of my roles became trying to get the BBC to share our videos. Right. I would literally cold email, cold call and say, hey, we've got this really cool video from the WTA would you share it on your website? And it was understanding like who would share it, what videos did well. And that was literally the beginning of, of sharing content. And so people like Henning, even though he was a tennis outsider and we all kind of, you know what it's like when tennis <laughs> <laughs> come into tennis, it's like, who is this person? What do they think they're doing with our sport? 
he was the beginning of the change. And then, you know, we've seen floods of different people come in with, you know, so much analytics and data behind now the content that's being produced and how best to share it and what performs well on what platform. And yeah, everything has changed Yeah, in the last 10 years. So absolutely keeping up with the technology, um, obviously for me, keeping up with the technology in terms of how I'm sh- sharing for my players. Neither of them are on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I have to confess, despite my whole thing about technology, which I very, very, very much agree with, because that's definitely how I felt like, especially for Ben and I, we were able to accelerate our entry into the sport. But it's also now a decade on how I feel like I'm looking behind in the rearview mirror a little bit yeah. of like, oh, God, there's stuff out there that I just don't understand. TikTok, I don't get. I can't. I just. Yeah. I think. Do I it. think there are certain. You don't have to get on every every bus no. that pulls into the depot. Like I. I feel mm-hmm. like. Like I never. I never liked Snapchat, for example. Yeah, I feel Snapchat, like it's already kind of either. come and yeah. gone. I think a little bit. Yeah, in terms that of its came relevance. and went very quickly. I and I feel like um, and TikTok. I'm not really making the move towards either. I feel like the best TikToks will make it to Twitter. That's kind of my feeling on, on TikTok. Yeah. yeah. No. Not. Not doing. Not doing the. Uh, the dances yeah but like for me like yeah. you know i've put my eggs in like for example like learning twitch learning more. yeah I've, ben knows like i'm like an audio obsessive like like learning and understanding audio a little bit more and that landscape i would love to be able to get into video and photography i'm just not mm-hmm. a visual person so it's not like you can you have to like you know do everything but it, it's no. it's definitely like i'm more than ready for somebody to completely leapfrog like me in terms of like somebody who does my job but does it even better because they know the technology and able to do things faster yeah. than what I can do. Well, it's Experience funny. still matters, but you know. What? I, yeah, the, the I feel not, like the storytelling, the storytelling will remain at the core of everything yeah. we do. We're just telling stories in different ways, but you still need to be able to understand what the story is, what's going to move people um, and what's going to teach them to love the sport. Yeah. One of these things that's going to feel, it feels like really silly even trying to explain it to a non-press room audience. One of the big controversies in the press room, like probably like three, four years ago, was this idea of, was this a huge fight over whether or not you should be allowed, allowed, to share screen caps of transcripts mm-hmm. on Twitter. This was a massive flare-up. Like, how dare you share a screen cap of a transcript on Twitter? That's like stealing all of our work. It's like bleeding us dry. And what I learned very quickly in doing this is that the people who are most vehemently against sharing screen caps on Twitter did not know how to make screen caps. Right. They just did not know the basic sort of, what I consider basic technology of making a, you know, it's clipping or whatever you want to call it or on the phone, you know, doing the two buttons thing. They didn't know how to do it. And so then I would show, and eventually a couple of them asked me like Mm -hmm. how to do it. And now a a few of them do it with impunity and they love it. (laughs) And they're all over screen cap and everything, you know, transcripts photos whatever and it's like if this is that's all there was so much resentment yeah bit, and this actually goes to like this goes to like wider like modernization industrialization globalization themes but like if you don't if you don't have the skill then you start resenting the workers yeah. who do and start you know othering them and attacking them and feeling insecure about your own abilities and it's just yeah. it's a whole thing <laughs> yeah no definitely i'd agree with that i think going back to you know what courtney was saying and that advice on best of five i think my message that I try to give to people who have come and asked since I started it, like what, you know, where do I start with advice? I always say, find your niche. And you know, that could, could be technology, but make yourself stand apart somehow. Be, be extra, especially good at one thing. Yeah. And know what that niche is and 
to sell that niche because as you say like in tennis it's such a small world we have excellent tennis photographers videographers they all come to the table with their different specialized skill set and then it kind of all fits together don't need to be an expert at all of them as long as you have one thing that sets you apart that's really important and and that's i think a really good really good tip that I think um, I hope that like the next generation of aspiring tennis media people like really take to heart because there's what I've seen and Ben and I have talked about this a lot offline is that within the last you know 10 years there hasn't been there's been a lot of cloning there's been Mm -hmm. a lot of people who want to get into the industry but they're doing it by just kind of copying the voice and the feel of what they think a sports reporter sounds like or what they think sports writing looks and sounds like. And that just makes you, I don't know your name. There's Mm -hmm. no reason I would read your byline. There's no reason I would read your tweets. There's Mm -hmm. just no reason that you as a brand, which I hate saying, but you as a brand matter Mm -hmm. or, you know, and so it is a little bit of that. It's and when I look back to, you know, that 2008, 2009, 2010 time when I was just futzing around on the internet and just riffing about tennis. What was it? And Ben had a little bit of this as well, although he was a lot more professional about it than me. But it was it was it was being humorous. It was being comedic. But it was also backed up by knowledge, backed up by what were pretty, for the most part, sound takes. At least that was what I would come to learn later is like people didn't completely dismiss me because they were like, well, but she's got a point. Like, if you cut through all of the stuff, like, she's got a point there or something. And he was so so passionate about it and so well read on it and paid interest in it. Yeah. And so, but that's, those are the things that set you, you know, uh, as opposed to, like, I'm going to start a blog and I'm going to write match reports. Yeah. Uh, uh, Why? Yeah. That's the thing, too. I've I've seen, I'm sure you get these emails from people, too. And this goes sort of a different, this is a standard chord question. You're best of five, Katie, also. But, like, how do you break in or how do you make a name for yourself? And I was thinking, just when you're talking about, having a brand or a niche. I was thinking of Victoria Chiesa, who has since gotten jobs working for, or does freelance for WTA maybe still, or works for USTA now. And she sort of became known on Twitter as being the person who like, knew, like focused on officiating and yeah. umpires and like rules and stuff. And, yeah. and which was a space that, that's exactly. And so that's like, that is the corner that she carved up that was open and lacked, you know, an authoritative, knowledgeable voice on. And she made that her thing. Maybe she was already organically drawn to those sorts mm-hmm. of topics. I think she certainly she was. It was not She's a calculated decision. Right. Yeah. She done officiating before and liked that and thought they were misunderstood and things like that. But that's an example of a very organic way that you can provide value to the community and the ecosystem of tennis coverage. And then as, the doors just open as up for a whole. You. Yeah. And then and then I get People like come seek you out. It's exactly. like, oh my gosh, like please. You become come work you become us. essential. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> in terms of like what you're saying like repetitive stuff, there are times when I'm sure you get these emails too, Courtney, maybe Katie, you have at different points as well. But like, hey, like I want to be a tennis writer. Like, you know, um here's like and if this is a better example, if they already have done any tennis writing, it's already a plus. But if they have, sometimes it's like, here's my like write up of like the Djokovic Federer Wimbledon final. And I was like, I almost certainly don't need to read this with due respect <laughs> to these people. But like, because like the, I, the odds, like this thing that everybody already wrote about that you're going to have something interesting or you need to say about it. And then they almost always, or they often just like go overboard with like florid language and think that's what people want about this stuff. But like, I would much rather read on several levels, your like interesting thoughts on like the quirks of Lauren Davis or something that's like really sort of like a no, unique path or something, something that hasn't been written about tons. And that's something that, 
you know, there would be space for because the, the sort of top line stuff is already really crowded. And yeah, and or yeah. having written something for someone yeah. and making it as a byline, as something you've genuinely, you know, had printed, yes. you know, published for a publication, then then you're gonna pay more attention. Yeah. 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 Here's my match report is not gonna yeah. yeah. And even just and even just not just not doing the for me at least in my own aesthetic, but not doing the obvious stuff, you know. If you wanna I think there's more space in tennis on the margins on some level, then you can work your way in. But I think you can sort of build from I don't know if Courtney you agree with that or not, but if you sort of build from the ground up and of are willing course. to yeah, to do sort I mean, of outre things. Both of us made our names by being passionate WTA people. Yeah. And not passionate insofar as we were ninety percent of our tweets were about Kim and Justine and Serena and Maria, but like having a shtick about how Sam Stozer is the greatest thing since sliced bread um, and making it and just like go and pedal to the metal with it, you know, and just, right. you know, and obsessing about lesser players and therefore not consciously, I would say at the time, but looking back on it, I can understand somebody looking at that and being like, here's somebody who can see storylines yeah, who can take. And so therefore, what if then we give her, access to whatever couldn't she then weave a story about the world 101 and make it compelling and you know and i think that what i've i i feel like i've been able to do over the course of my career is be able to get in on the ground floor of a lot of a lot of players or events or whatever yeah. and people will always say oh nobody cares about that person well i'm gonna make them care yeah i i believe that i have the ability to do that yeah, yeah. The other thing I think is really important to say to someone who's trying to get in is no one's going to turn down a good idea. If you go to an editor with a brilliant idea for a story, it doesn't matter if they don't know your name. They're going to say, you know what? Go for it. Write it up. Send yeah. it. Yeah. They're not going to turn it down. If it's unique enough and if it's something that makes sense for that publication, go for it. Yeah. So that's another thing I used to do. I used to say, hey, I, I've got this idea for this story. And this is this. I can't even remember. <laughs> nonsense at the time but they like that they like someone who's not coming to them saying can i have a job please it's like hey yeah. really good idea for a story this is how it's going to work and you know give me a chance give me a shot and yeah. the editor worth their soul who has come up along the same path will say go for it yeah sell the paul ideas more than yourself yeah yeah paul newman who who now is oh, a paul tennis writer and edits tennis head and is one of the most respected and loved um, people in tennis. He was the sports editor of The Independent when I was at the London School of Journalism. And I emailed him and I said, I would love to meet you for a coffee. Can I come and pick your brain for half an hour? And he said, yes. And lots of sports editors said no, but he said yes and took the time. And that meant the absolute world to me. And, you know, and now he's, he's one of my favorite people to work with. And I've worked with him for, you know, every year yeah. since. Yeah. Investing time in people and then you know, paying it forward, also important in such a small world. And I remember when I was filling out the best of five questions, and I don't know if the, I ended up submitting this one um, as an answer or whether I scrapped it. And I kind of think I may have scrapped it, but it was it was one of the things I wanted to say it was just precisely that. Like, you have no idea who the people that you meet 
at any given point what they will become. And this goes back mm -hmm. to the first time you and I met uh, yeah. when I was when I was a blogger and poor and staying at a hostel in Rome and I couldn't get tickets for like the Lena Maria Sharapova like semi or like no Stozer Sharapova I think maybe semifinal in Rome and I just was tweeting about it because uh, the match was sold out or something because of the men's match and Katie like DM me and was like do you want a ticket and I was like uh excuse me like I was floored and uh, WTA Katie. <laughs> exactly WTA Katie baby um and yeah and it meant a lot and who's who would have known where we would end up a decade yeah. later <laughs> I already followed you at that point I already knew all about you I knew your blog I knew how passionate you were I knew you were traveling around the world trying you know trying to get into tennis um so that's why it matters it matters what you're putting out on Twitter and and you know what you're sharing with the world because it counts and yeah that was an awesome meeting yeah. And we yeah. did this born and then, <laughs> and then oh, and oh yeah and, and then there was the your final farewell farewell party in istanbul which was very very memorable i don't know if you remember any of it katie <laughs> I don't know what you're suggesting, Courtney. I'm incredibly well-behaved, especially in Istanbul in the first year of the championships. That was that was a sloppy night, my friends. A sloppy, uh, sloppy night. God bless the WTA for inviting a, 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 a journalist to the year-end party that year. I saw uh, some things. Good times, good times. Yeah, I would say that. I would just echo that. People, Be aware that people, even if you don't feel like you're being seen, people are seeing you and maybe more forebodingly watching you for better or worse. So keep also don't, you know, say things to piss off people who you do want to endear unnecessarily. If they're doing something, you know, that deserves, you know, I'm not saying yeah, stand up be dishonest, yourself, stand, but, stand up, be, yeah. you know, be authentic and whatever, but also don't be needlessly harsh. And this goes even just as a, with a young reporter, you know, realizing yeah. very quickly, surprisingly, like how, like, not just like some players, but kind of like all the players, whether they did, they didn't actually follow me on Twitter, but they were all like seeing my tweets very clearly had their burners or agents or friends or whatever, seeing these things and like very quickly, oh, like, oh, wow, like, you know, insert like superstar player here definitely has seen like said tweets about that I sent whenever back then. And just learning that was sort of like a, a cautionary to the luck. I don't think I got burned too much on. Yeah, but and I think that's also valid for players, you know, who mm. when they're coming up, have 500 people following them and then you know they win a grand slam and they've got you know two million people following them and and everything that they've put out there in the journey to that point is is there so that's you yeah. know important um thing to teach them is to have awareness about what they're putting out there um yeah. he's really good at helping them with that and katie i'm kind of curious just um because you know with your work with 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 petra probably in particular um i'm curious about because i'm just always fascinated by the language dynamics of being a professional athlete in tennis. Um, and I've, I remember asking Simona this back years ago about back when before she was a slam champion before all of this and being like, are you does it are you comfortable answering questions in English? Do you feel like you can express yourself accurately yeah. or can you not? And I remember her saying something very, very telling <laughs> at the time. And she's obviously grown and matured and blossomed ever since. But um, of saying, you know, I can't even express myself in Romanian. Oh. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, I, I feel things and I don't know what it is. So it's not a language barrier of, you know, English or Romanian. It's just I don't know, you know. And I, and I remember when Petra first, you know, 2011, like wins Wimbledon and whatever. And her English was, she, she bless her heart, she was trying. Yeah. <laughs> but but we would all but what we would rec we would notice though 
in, you know, because she's a Wimbledon champion. She's an incredible talent, very marketable, want to sell her, but couldn't get a good, proper English interview out of her. Yeah. Right? Um, but when we would, when the English portion of the press conference would end, the Czech portion would begin and everybody's laughing up a storm. So it's like, it wasn't even like a Lee Na situation where it was like, well, maybe she's just that way. You know, like it was like, no, she, clearly this kid has a personality. They seem to love her. We, you know, so in terms of how working with players, like non, you know, English speaking players, like how do you, how did you kind of help with that? And um, what is kind of the strategy there? Um, Petra's quite an extreme example because. Uh, she did reach the semifinals at Wimbledon in 2010. And I actually, mm-hmm. at the WTA, I took her to a BBC interview. They interviewed all the semifinalists. Um, I remember it was over by the practice courts and she was really nervous walking over there because she was so nervous about her English. And I watched the interview. First, as you said, she tried, but she just really couldn't give longer than like three or four word answers because she didn't have the vocabulary. It wasn't because she didn't have things to say it was because she didn't have the vocabulary and that was you know causing a stress for her um so we started working together indian wells 2011 and one of the first things we did was sit down first of all i gave her some books to read in english and obviously started talking to her in english all the time at the time she had a czech team so even though she's traveling internationally and english is very much you know the tennis language she's with a czech team so she's talking czech all the time so obviously I'm speaking with her in English, we're, we're writing to each other in English. I've given her English books to read. And then we also printed out transcripts um, of a couple of players who I thought were very, very good in press, Roger Federer and Maria Sharapova being two examples. Um, and we sat down and we looked at the questions, which you know are questions that she was asked after every match. And we looked at the way they answered them and gave more information than you might feel naturally was necessary but that gave the journalist something to work with, you know, and I explained that that was the point that we wanted to try to get to with her, with her English. And um, then I would literally print out every transcript from every press conference she did. And then we would go over it and say like, you know, you, you keep making this mistake here, or you could have said this here or there, or, um, and it was like a slow process, um, but she really took to it. She, it wasn't like, Um, this was an arduous task for her. She wanted to learn. This was something that, you know, she knew was going to really help her on tour and make her feel more comfortable on tour. So she, you know, she's a great student of anything. She, yeah, she started working really hard and making really big improvements. And then slowly but surely the confidence started building and she would be able to be that funny girl that she is in Czech in English. And and hopefully now you guys see that she is able to joke around and smile make fun of journalists and, you know, have, have a good time on the other side of the microphone. So lots of hard work and definitely, as I say, an extreme example, because she did win Wimbledon in 2011. She suddenly had all this attention on her. But um, yeah, all credit to her for recognizing that was an important part of her um, career as a, as a professional tennis player. I think that story is a tremendous testimony to her, obviously, and her willingness, and also to you, obviously, for 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 that's for, a lot of work for, for the work that you did, and also, but also getting her. This is, a, I think, a bigger point. Getting her to maybe she was naturally predisposed, but getting her to buy into it, because so often I see players approach press conferences or media as just a chore, as like their least favorite part of the day, in extreme examples, and not really understanding the benefits or point that can come out of it. And this can be, you know, just from a purely selfish perspective, but also a bigger picture like not understanding that they are there 
you know, crassly to promote the event and promote the the game. And that's why the press conferences are mandatory, you know, so because yeah, it's, you... it, it's it's maybe mandatory as you think is maybe you're sort of I'm curious your reaction to that word. But yeah, what, 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 how, how do you, yeah, I think puts a lot of them off. It does. Yeah. The first question. So when you're when you're a communications manager at the WCA and you send out aces, which is what the term that describes the promotional activities that they will do. So press and sponsor visits and autograph sessions. And when you send them out, like often the first question the player will ask is, is it mandatory? And that word yeah. almost has a negative association, which is why I, you know, reacted like that. But um, yeah, I think going into a press conference room full of often older males can be really, really intimidating. It can be intimidating for anyone. They find it stressful. One of the big things I did when I was still at the WTA was rookie hours with with the younger players who were up and coming, which um, we would lead them through a deck. Like it was fairly basic at that point. Hopefully they've added more elements to it now, but um, you know, like a training session or media training. What? Why are you talking to the media? What, what are they hoping to gain from talking to you? What are you hoping to gain from talking to them? And, you know, we would talk about body language and tone of voice and some of the detail that, that, you know, they should be sharing, some that they maybe shouldn't be sharing, um, how it was okay to show emotion and literally like break it down for them. And hopefully they, you know, they took some of that on board and learned from it. Because, um, yeah, it's not easy. But just, just even that thing you were saying, and this brought a tear to my eye, truly, as someone who just wishes more of this happened, that more people of your caliber were working in the sport, or, or more players were hiring people of your caliber to, when, if they're out there, because you can't help with everybody in that sort of level of detail, I don't think. But, like, the thing about, like, going over, like like you said, like, Roger, it's, like, a classic example of, like, Roger gives a satisfying answer to almost every single question he's asked. He's unbelievably... Fulfill, you know, you know, you really feel sated by what you get from from Roger in a press conference. But even like from I used to do sort of like you know sidebar-y stories. I remember asking a question once about like Roger, do you like that the courts are like blue at the U.S. Open? He gave me some long meditation on like the color blue and like how it changed. And he like he had both. And this like it was just, like it made the story also because he's obviously you know big deal name too. So you have a Federer quote, it like elevates the story a lot. But also it was also like the best thing anybody said about it. So he's like a unique gift in that way. But I just I remember I can't remember who it was. I want to say maybe this is not right, Courtney. But when we did our first ever guest podcast on NCR with Pekovic back at Indian Wells in yeah. I think 2013, we were waiting to go into the side interview room, and we were in the back of the room. I think Djokovic was finishing up a press conference in there at the time. I think it was Djokovic, and so we had to we stood in the back and waited for like four minutes of the last parts of Djokovic's English press to wrap up. And I believe and I might be getting this wrong. It might be a different scenario I'm thinking of, but I think Pekovic was saying like that was interesting. That's the first other players' press conference I've ever been in, mm-hmm. right? They don't they don't see each other there. It's a very individual experience. They think that all all press conferences are like theirs, and that's just not the case. The the player yeah. does so much setting the tone and navigating their experience, and has so much more control over a press conference situation than I think than I think they realize. So true. Yeah, you're in control of your narrative. That's the one thing we keep pushing home. You are in charge. You're the boss. You decide what you share and what you don't share. And no one else knows what's going in, inside of your head. And you are the expert on you. So don't worry. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, that's so true. Um, they don't see each other in press. And they don't really even see each other do photo shoots or um, do, make appearances 
you know, I can think of times when we've been doing the WTA marketing shoot and a player might come in and, you know, watch a little bit of the other player. And it's probably really interesting for them to see each other outside of the court doing something that's important and they know it's important. Um, and yeah, seeing them in that different light because some people are very natural at it and, and some people aren't. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of the the problems that can happen with player and media interactions is is just based off of that it's like it all comes from an insecurity mm. it all comes from a defensiveness of you know and and <clears throat> you know like i mean like i think simone is a great example of somebody who i think has always sometimes to her detriment but she does she can't tell a lie like she she's yeah. very like it's out there like <laughs> you know um it's you know the hurt the pain the joy everything it's, it's there and it Simona. doesn't yeah. it's That's it's raw and like, it, it's great yeah yeah please never change that yeah. It, <laughs> yeah exactly but the, but the, i think about some of like the other players who it's like i've thought about this before where i'm just like oh man i would love for that player to just get like a two-hour vip sit-down session with spellman <laughs> of just like to, oh. just to explain like you yeah. know like you are in control yeah. this can be a fun experience for you yeah it can be enjoyable. Um, people, for the most part, especially on the WTA side, no one's in that room coming after no. you. They're looking for a story. And you can give it to them. I think the opposite example of that is like British players when they lose. Yes. In that press conference room. And that is just absolutely brutal. Yeah, that Annie Kay a few years, yeah, like a few years exactly, ago. Yeah, exactly. That was, was thinking of. You know. Laura had to deal with it a lot. Very had, yeah. Yeah, no, that, I, That's I the agree with that. Like, I feel like, but yeah. yeah. Well, and I, but, but I think also, I think that interestingly, um, for most players, they're much more hesitant and reticent with their local press. Mm -hmm. With their national press is where the, the walls go up. As opposed to with international press where I feel like maybe the international press, we're just not into, we're just not part of their, we don't know every single tabloid detail. We don't know all that sort of stuff. So we're a bit safer That's in a lot true. of ways. I remember Daniela Hantakova used to really struggle with Slovakian media for various reasons, the stories they've written here and there. And she was so happy to do all the international media. And then, you know, it was it was a struggle to get her to do the Slovakian stuff. So um that's so true it, i feel like it can go one way or the other it depends on the relationship of the player with that national press like petra with her national press just happens to have like an incredible they love her yeah, yeah they, they love her she loves them they have a laugh so i feel like it can go both ways yeah lena lena was another famous yeah. one where it was like effusive one way in in English, and then you just—I mean, if you sat in the room, you just saw <laughs> yeah, it. Like the, the the temperature in the room changed <laughs> the minute it was like national language. Yeah. 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 And then she'd just look at me and be like, "We're done. Let's go." <laughs> <laughs> and who are you to argue with Lena? Exactly. You know. <laughs> Do you, on a basic, this is something I want—I think about with a bunch of players, especially who ones who I've seen come up. Sorry, who don't predate me on tour players who I've seen come up and I wonder if they realize how big a deal or not how big a deal they are. I feel like tennis players so often are told that they're, you know, they're the, they're the, obviously the CEOs and stars of their own teams and of their own lives and think of themselves as big deal people. And I think often, you know, honestly overestimate their own importance a lot of times in certain contexts with things. How often, I, I'm, this is, I do not think this is the case at all with your two clients in Simona or Petra. I don't think either of them fit this description whatsoever. But how often have you been in a position where you need to sort of 
get a player to sort of understand they they actually need to work to sell and promote themselves and they're not already an established big deal thing. Because I've been in a couple of situations like in life, I remember, um, to use it, and this is not really, because it's not her saying this, it doesn't really fuck, it fucks more on me than her. But I was in, in doing jury duty in 2013, which is a completely random selection of people from society. And it was happened to be the same week of the Washington tennis tournament. Um, and I was, you know, they knew what I was, we had spent enough time together in this jury room that we also knew what we were doing. I was like, I'm going to the tournament later. And they're like, oh, who's, you know, the stars of the tournament? And I said, oh, Sloane Stevens is there. Nobody had any idea. And to me, who she was at all. And to me, she had just been Serena this year. She'd had the pizza controversy. Like she was like a big deal character, but she had not yet resonated or registered with this completely scientifically random selection of 12 people in the city at all and I, I i don't know i that was sort of was interesting to recalibrate for me it's like wow i can get caught up in this sort of small world of being within tennis and thinking everything in here is huge when mm-hmm. it's not always actually making as big an impact in the wider world as i would think or as i would hope um and and i'm just curious like how if if players are understanding of tennis's role and stuff or or yeah. if everything feels like big potatoes when you're when you're when you're these big fish in this relatively contained and very well lit tank uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know where you approach that question from. Um, I feel like some players understand that if they say yes to going out and doing an autograph session for fans, then those fans are going to know who they are and they want to do more of that. Some players absolutely love the promotional side and that's you know a part that they really enjoy because they want to be out there and they like having fans and being adored and signing things. That's a thrill for them. And then others find that side stressful. So maybe shy away from it, tend to say no to things. It also depends on the team around them and whether their agent is more likely to say no to things. Yeah. Um, so it really depends on the individual. And talking about whether I've, you know, had to kind of underline to someone the importance of, you know, their job as a professional, you know, part of it is, is meeting fans and engaging with them. And, you know, I've been at autograph sessions where a player literally has not made eye contact with a single fan, just looked down and signed and signed and signed. And so, you know, yeah, I've, I've had conversations where I've been like, you know, that person is going to meet you once in their life. And that's going to be one of the highlights of their life for them because they're a huge tennis fan. They've come out to meet you specifically. If you look them in the eye and say something individualized to them, about thank you for coming or do you play tennis or anything like that moment is going to resonate with them for the rest of their life. If you look down and don't even like take a picture with them, you know, they're going to be disappointed. I was an autograph hunter. I remember what it was like, you know, when people just ignored me and brushed past me, it was, you know, heartbreaking. And if they actually looked at me and said something and, you know, gave me a sweatband, that was like heaven. So, yeah, I've definitely been in positions where I've had to try and explain a little bit of that. And again, some of them get it and some of them don't get it. So it's it's, it's, it's tough. Balance. Yeah. And, you know, tennis, they're so professional. They're so ruthlessly professional that tennis is the most important thing. And for some of them, everything that goes on around it is a distraction and takes away, you know, their focus from practice and matches. So it's tricky. Do you, do you, on that point, do you see, you know, obviously you, you work on the PR side. Um, the athletes also have agents that kind of work business side. Everybody's um, conception of what an agent is. It just depends on the relationship with the player, right? And contractually what they do. Yeah. Some of them do both PR and agent side. But I'm curious from, 
your perspective, how that relationship kind of works, you know, because obviously it's a business, but again, I mean, I guess it's just, it's no different than any other corporation, right? There's public relations side, Mm -hmm. there's the marketing side, and then there's the nuts and bolts. But, you know, where do you find there to be kind of the those the most kind of friction I guess that can sometimes not actual friction but tension between what is good for a player's kind of PR mm-hmm. and stuff versus you know the the other side and a pr- totally pr- uh, professional side of what they need to do yeah it's interesting so I have nothing to do with the amount of money they earn from endorsements appearance fees solely and paid by the player directly don't have anything to do with the agencies and I'm there to help them with their PR and social media which I love the fact that I'm completely separated from the money that they earn um, because it means I can do my job fully committed to bringing the best out of them and for them the agent world is you know it's a very different world to what I do Um, you know they are there to make money um, for the player and the agency so that I feel like that path is more complicated to tread than than the path I tread with my player. Um, I do work very closely with both of their business managers and more so now because so many of their contracts involve social media. So there's definitely an overlap between what I do and what the agents are now working into these contracts. But in terms of, I never have to be in a position where I need my player to do something because it affects them financially. And I love and I, I wouldn't change that. I could never be an agent. I could never be on that side because money is definitely not a motivating factor for me. So yeah, exactly. that, that makes, makes that, that makes, makes a lot of sense. I, I do think though, like you mentioned, obviously, I feel like so many tennis players, because I think they're transferred by their agents, see so much of everything they do outside of, you know, practice or, or even actually matches because there's money for winning each match. Everything can be seen as so transactional, right? And so- yeah. Like, and so much of, like, when you were on the tour working with more a more general client base of, of the whole tour, basically, how did you have to convince players of, like, what the value of, mm. like, doing a magazine profile type interview was for them and for the sport? And how do you sell that on them, even if there is no check that comes in the mail after finishing this yeah. interview directly from that? And how, and I, I feel like this is something... And maybe you've seen this in your in the last few years. I feel like it's something that players. I'm sure Billie Jean King would say this. Um, or not to put words in her mouth, but I, I bet she would. That like players are sort of losing the the concept of that of like the need to sort of the value of doing this sort of uh, earned media type stuff, especially with social media out there. They're like, well, why would I do an interview when I could just put up an Instagram post? Like, I, yeah. I think yeah, I think that. How, how would you tell a player who maybe you haven't worked or who's showing resistance to doing, I don't know, a magazine profile or something like that, a young up and coming player of some kind that this is actually worth their time and will, and will make it, make it, make it appeal to them. How do you sell them on this, this concept? Yeah, I'd say it's definitely getting harder just because yeah. of the way journalism is being diluted. Uh, I spoke to Pete Holterman about this recently. Um, and actually, I read a really interesting tweet from a sports writer saying, I've got so many ideas and so many brilliant things to write, and I have nowhere to pitch them to, which is terrifying. Um, so, the, the you know, the big opportunities, the cover shoots, the big photo shoots, the big one-on-one interviews with, you know, respected, well-known journalists, they don't come along that often anymore which is really sad. So when you go to a player with one of those big opportunities, like they're, they're pretty willing to take it. You know, I generally worked with like the, the higher level of ranking, I would say, when I was at the WTA. And so 
generally they you know they were good opportunities and they they understood by that point why it was important for them to do that i would say um players with agents who are supportive of pr and not who don't feel like pr is taking away from paid opportunities are you know worth like they're so valuable um so players with agents who are in support were much more likely to do these things um there were definitely some agents who wouldn't push the player to do them but you know i just feel like it's all about relationship and them believing that it's a good opportunity because you tell them it's a good opportunity yeah you can you can tell pretty much from what the publication is and what they want to do and what the story is they want to tell you know whether it's worth it or not so I would say generally with the top ranked players, that was an, an easier thing to achieve. Um, and then with the lower ranked players, if someone's wanting to write about you, you, you know, you have to tell them this is really good. They, they want to tell your story. They're interested in you and you can tell them this, this and this. And this is an opportunity to talk about this, you know. Um, so th- there's definitely an element of selling when you're going to a player and asking them to do these things. But I haven't really met too much resistance, thankfully. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> No, nope, that's the idea. That's that's the ideal. Um, I I did I, before the interview ended. I did also want to ask because we've spent most of the time talking about your work with players, um, but obviously you also work for events um, and have done PR for events, which is like again when I think of somebody who's like you know you or Preston or you know just all of these these great women who have worn so many different hats on different sides of of the thing. But you've also done PR uh, media management as well for. Um, Rogers Cup for the Connecticut Open, obviously with a friend of the pod and Worcester, who we all love and adore. And uh, and yeah, and I'm I'm curious from your perspective from from doing it that way because obviously, given your experience with WTA Comms, kind of jumping into the player side PR seems pretty seamless because yeah. that's that's very much the core competency. But then when you flip on to kind of managing things from the the media standpoint for a tournament what was what has that experience been like for you what is what have you enjoyed about it and what have been the challenges yeah it's definitely different working for a tournament because they have one week in the year where they've got to put on their show and it counts for everything so there's a lot of pressure on that one week in the calendar um so there's so much planning involved and you know so much work goes in ahead of the event that maybe I didn't as a WTA comms manager and then working for players, I didn't necessarily have an, a full understanding of, of the extent of the planning that goes in. Um, but also knowing that you can do as much planning as you want, but a player is going to pull out two days before <laughs> and your ACES program is going to be ripped up and you're going to have to start again. So I think um, in terms of like having the experience of thinking on my feet from from journalism and being on deadline to you know working with players who don't want to go and do press and um, all of those things contributed helpfully to me being able to to go and and work on behalf of tournament Um, the other thing that I really like working for a tournament is that you feel like you're part of a team Um, obviously tennis is such an individual sport and working with individuals um, not isolating but you know you can feel slightly you know like a like an island um, whereas when you're working for a tournament, um, you all want to achieve the same goal. Um, and there's something to really get your teeth into and get behind. Um, so I definitely really enjoyed that aspect. And then just the execution of the ideas that you've worked so hard on and, you know, finally getting them across the line and producing a great piece of content or a great PR piece. Um, just the satisfaction from that is is really cool. You you are responsible for some of the most iconic 
uh, tournament-led content uh, that the WTA has seen yeah. in recent years, most notably your work at Connecticut Open and the uh, and uh, the the Eclipse, which just iconic yeah. iconic work from from Dominika Savolkova and Agnieszka Wawrinska and, and Petra also the, uh, and Petra video and Petra and Petra, and Petra. <laughs> And the shot clock video, of course, um, which is screen, which has been screen grabbed and memed left and right on Twitter. No pizza? No, Carolina, no pizza. Nine. <laughs> that was that was when Yulia retired. A lot of people were were, were shooting that one around. <laughs> um, but you know, I know that from the tournament side, or sorry, from the tour side, you know, there's a reason why most tour videos only feature one single player. Yeah, you can't coordinate many players at the same time. Um, there's too many moving parts, and also we can't really. There's outside of you know all access hour the mandatory things or maybe con um, categorizing something as an ace. Mm -hmm. We're asking favors, yeah, of players right to do things. And so when sometimes when I see on Twitter people like saying like why can't the WTA or the ATP do X Y Z type of content. Mm -hmm. It's like, believe me when I tell you, there are impediments to executing something like that. Yeah. Um, but from the tournament side, I assume that it is easier. I know this from Nick McCarville and India Wells and, you know, Charleston, that because you guys can ask the players, right? I mean, you're literally playing that, paying them with prize money. <laughs> True. But, but we do it all within like the Aces timeframe. I think, right. honestly, I think the key to those successful pieces of content is in convincing them that it's going to be good and that the end product is going to be worth them doing and it's going to be funny and, and, you know, getting them to buy into what you're trying to achieve. So it's all in the like explaining to them, okay, this is going to sound really weird because you're going to get one line and it's going to seem completely out of context, but this is a script and, you know, this is what the end result is going to be. And I feel like if you kind of approach it like that with them having a full understanding of how it's going to play out, then they're much more willing to do it. Um, plus Connecticut open had a good reputation for, for creating brilliant content before I got there. Um, thanks to Matt Van Tynan and Nick yes. and their team. the election debate, the debate, exactly. uh, video. Um, yeah. And yeah. Drew Carlisle is a videographer on all this content that we've been talking about that we've produced. He is amazing. Um, and he's also very creative. So we have literally sat down the night before we've produced these videos and, and made a script. Um, and he's very good at thinking on his feet, but also he sees the video at the end. I, I can mm -hmm. help to get the players to, to say and do and whose personality might be best for this line or that line, but he sees the end result. He's brilliant. There's no one, no one like Drew. Drew, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, so it's teamwork. It's all teamwork. And then, as I say, it's, it's getting the player to buy in. Anne Worcester at the Connecticut Open obviously has a brilliant relationship with the players. So that massively helps because she comes along to every single ace at that tournament, bless her. Um, and she, you know, she's standing there giggling and laughing. And I feel like if they feel comfortable um, because they've understood the, the idea, they've seen that other players have had fun with it, then, um, then they'll go for it. They actually like being taken out of their comfort zone and being asked to do something weird. Because when else do they get asked to do something weird or say something weird or wear something weird you know so actually they're quite willing willing to do it um yeah. maria sharapova rogers cup we did a media training video which we loved because it comes back to everything we've been talking about and there were some flowers <laughs> on the press conference uh table and she just kind of 
like out of nowhere produced this like actress Maria and she started sniffing the flowers <laughs> and like peering out from behind them. Um, we were just like, you go, you go girl, you give them a brief and you go. <laughs> Bless it. So they are, you, you, are mean... willing to do that fun stuff. If the, if the, you know, environment is, is sufficiently supportive and, and explained. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that's that, communication. That, that the explanation is communication of, of yeah. what it is and why. And, yeah. and and that that's yeah they just want answers and relational yeah. i mean it, it again it just comes back to relationships and even like for for my job at, at wta with insider it's the same sort of thing like at this point the players pretty much tr like i will every time we sit down i'm like if i'm gonna go somewhere weird i'm like just trust me just go with it <laughs> like i'm not gonna burn you yeah. just hold, i'm gonna hold your hand just just follow me where i'm going like you know yeah. And at this point they do and you know and so it's not that my questions are any better than anybody else's or anything like that it's simply that they their guards are down they're willing to just kind of like keep talking as opposed to like being careful about their words or something but so much of it just comes down to relationships mm -hmm. it just becomes comes down to the trust tree and establishing a safe zone and being like don't worry um and it's it's hard sit down say hi how are you how's it going how was practice you know just like make them feel like a human being yeah. Uh, treat them don't put them on a pedestal don't treat them like they're a world-class athlete just treat them like they're a person and make them feel comfortable yeah and just that yeah exactly that it doesn't come off as transactional that you're not just there to execute on a, a to-do list you know yeah. I, there's a very small moment like it was after Simone had lost the French Open final uh the second time <laughs> um, against Ostapenko and it was in Eastbourne was her next event and I was just I just happened to be walking up this in internal stairwell somewhere which I don't even know where that would be because it's Eastbourne yeah. but it was an internal stairwell maybe where the player lounge is yeah. there's like a two-story thing anyways and we had just kind of crossed each other and obviously the last time I'd seen her was a very very tense like you know heartbreaking press conference and she was like hello like as someone just kind of <laughs> you know hello and uh and i was crossing i was like hi and and she's like how are you and i was like i'm doing well how are you and she was and she kind of like stopped and looked at me and i was like and i just kind of shrugged at her i was like are you okay <laughs> and she's like i'm okay i'm like okay because i was a little worried <laughs> like we just like we didn't say anything more but we just kind of like kept walking and whatever and but it was it's one of those things where there are certain players simone is this way petra's this way where if you see them, they say hello. You see them as they see you as a human being. You see them. They ask you about your day. Yeah. It's so small. And it's like a 10 second piece of banter. Yeah. At the beginning or the end or the middle of yeah. uh, of an interview or whatever. But it just it's incredible how much it greases the yeah. wheels. And it just lets the air out of the balloon. Yeah. Exactly. And just everybody. And, just like, and that's cool. so much of like, what I think is often missing in or I think tennis is moving away from is that sort of commonality and that social thing and i think so many players are getting positioned as seeing tennis media or media in general as being sort of adversarial and not as as people and you only if you only ever see them from opposite sides of the podium and don't like talk in the hallways or whatever and this is why i think it's important not even just from access point of view but just from keeping the temperature and the you know the the vibe good for everybody of having like media be allowed in like the same hallways as the players and the same you know at like the restaurant if like have access whatever just so they don't only see you as a person who asks questions after you lose they also see you as somebody who's maybe 
maybe getting a third sandwich if they're keeping track, you know? And so <laughs> something, something like that is, that's more humanizing or whatever, I think can be really good for just keeping the, the, the vibes good and the, and the, you know, the, the key good, because it's really, it's like with the exception, like you said, of British media after Wimbledon losses often, it's a pretty chill, chill scene when it, when it needs to be. And it can be, everyone's sort of usually what's good for, one person is good for everybody in, in those sorts yeah. of situations. So Mut- mutual it, benefit is, is big. Yeah. But you used to get like an hour for a one-on-one interview. Or right. Not every week, but, you know, those big sit-down interviews that you had the space to write 2,000 exactly. words, you don't get that anymore. No. So the interactions are much shorter. And how do you get to know a player properly? And how do they get to know you if, you know, you're only meeting them for five minutes on the back of a press conference? It's, it's yeah. definitely better to establish. Yeah, the the distance is is, is has grown yeah. for sure, I mean, and COVID happens. you know. Yeah, exactly, and it's yeah, gonna get worse. Well, it's gonna get worse, exactly. It's brutal. I mean, like even this year, even just thinking back to earlier in our conversation about you know relationships and you know Paul Newman taking the time to answer your email and meet up for coffee. I mean, one of the things that I've really missed out not missed out on but missed this year is like so much of when I'm on the road it is getting emails from people or it is meeting people and being like yeah let's grab a beer or come you know hang out at Applebee's and Mason with us and like and you're ha- and there and you can tell they're like oh my gosh like I'm eating chicken wings next to 40 deuce which is such an absurd sentence yeah. to be quite or we honest. get NCR listeners who um, like here if they get both of us together like oh my god I feel like I'm in an episode we get that a lot yeah and it's yeah Aww. and so but, but, just but nothing with people but nothing but nothing like that with this sort of to, to mope like nothing organic like that is happening during COVID every you if you didn't get sent directly well, a zoom link you're not hearing you're not there for our conversations well, and, anymore mm-hmm. And that's a big thing, too, with respect to the players. Yeah. I mean, I was in pretty much like 90% of the press conferences from Palermo through Linz um, for an eight-week you know, period. It felt incredibly um, sterile and lame because these this is not actually how I'm used to interacting with the players. There is usually banter when Petra walks up to the dais. She's the one usually giving us shit about something. Yeah. And then we kind of like... Yeah, exactly. Uh, hello. Hello, everybody. Um, and, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, and then when they get off the dais, you know, those little informal moments where they're walking away and or you just happen to be walking into the press conference at the same time as Naomi Osaka. And you can say things off so record, joke. too. You say things off record. Yeah. I think it one of the funniest moments at Roland Garros this year was I had a press conference with, with Zhang Shuai. Um, after a, she lost and we did first English questions and then for WTA China I asked her to you know speak to, to basically Which answer English questions in Mandarin Bless her. I know Bless she just starts speaking back in English I'm like Zhang Shui like Mandarin I need it in Mandarin um which is great but then so all that took about five six seven minutes and then we were done and I was like okay thank you like and I just like so are you flying back to China? Whatever. And she just kept like asking questions about me for like the next like 10 minutes. And the moderator, bless her heart, let it go. But at some point she was like, we need to, like, this is just you guys. <laughs> I was like, sorry, my bad. But that was the most normal yeah. interaction yeah, that I've had with a player this entire That's how you like, that's how you like year. build trust. And I've been thinking that with like, with like, I was thinking that with like some of the younger, let's throw a name out there. Um, 
I think it's come up recently other ways, but like like Riley Opelka, I was thinking of this year, who's gone from being like a top like eighty ish player to like I don't know top forty ish now. But well, I was, but I like I'm not exactly sure what his ranking is. Something like that. It's men's player, whatever. But like I sort of I sort of, but I outsider. sort of was not because of this ten month stretch of COVID or whatever. I was not there for the times when he would have been like making runs and like I would have actually got to spend time with him, get to know him, and like break ice mm-hmm. or whatever. And now he's sort of transitioning from one phase of like obsc- relative obscurity to like mm-hmm. relative relevance without mm-hmm. sort of being there along the way. I just feel like I sort of missed the sort of in terms of re- developing well, reporter relationships there anyway. On the WTA side, I mean, a good example is probably Iga, despite yeah. the fact that mm. we have been in her. You and I at least know Iga, but most people don't. Yeah. yeah, like I've been covering Iga the same way that I used to cover Naomi. Like, I know that you're going to break out at some point mm. and I just need to, like, lay the groundwork. Mm. But the whole time in Paris, watching that go down and be like, are you serious? Is Iga Sviantek going to win a Grand Slam? And I'm like, not there. Oh, like, yeah, this is really frustrating. I don't want to do the. I don't want to do a champ's corner over a spotty Zoom call. I don't want to, you know, and it's just frustrating yeah. like you know not how it's meant to be can i ask yeah. one sort of last thread um for thank you for all your time already katie it's been wonderful and this is maybe it could have been a whole separate episode itself so apologies i'm opening a, a too large of a, a barrel of worms here but one of the focuses in your best of five series often and most of your subjects your interviews are women and a lot of the questions are about uh being a woman working in sports and in sports media particularly and I'm curious to have both both of you how you've seen this sort of change and evolve, the sort of challenges of being a woman in the sports arena, and also maybe opportunities that come with being a woman in, in this arena. And women's and men's sport, because you both worked in, in both. Or women's and mixed sport, I should say, with tennis. Yeah, I think definitely the common thread. So I ask the same questions each week, because mm-hmm. I think it's more interesting to see how different people answer them in different ways. Um, and... Every single woman I've asked about, you know, what challenge she's faced being a woman in the sports media, there has been something. She's experienced something. Yeah. yeah. Everything is improving, you know, across the board for women. But sport is kind of one of the final areas to be more accepting of women, I feel. Um, And so when I was a young a woman on the sports desk of a tabloid in England, I had all sorts of problems and, you know, comments and jibes and um, just assumptions. And I had a horrible time. Um, But one of my editors at some point said to me, you need to develop a thicker skin, which may have been harsh at the time, but it was actually really true. I did. Um, And I needed to not let it stop me from you know chasing my dreams and what I wanted to achieve um that was a really hard lesson at the time but it's definitely stuck with me um and maybe I've let it bother me less through the rest of my career or maybe I do feel like moving into tennis so I was in football like I was in the thick of it um but moving into tennis was definitely a more um gentle world I feel for women just because of the strength of the women's game but yeah it, it it's a it's a tricky place to be sometimes. What do you think? It is. Yeah, no, I, I definitely 100 percent agree. I have been spoiled um, completely because I have only worked in sport in tennis and tennis. As you said, it's a much more gentle um, kind of space. Um, you know, obviously, especially working a lot with WTA, it almost got to the point where I became very I forgot how male dominated sports writing and sports media is. 
um, until like a few, like we had a job opening up um, uh, back in February for like somebody to help me out on Insider. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like, you know, like looking forward to the, you know, a diverse slate of candidates, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it it was 95% male, white, white male applicants. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's not saying they don't know how to do the job, but it was, it was more about me realizing that my experience, I mean, the WTA web team has, is like pretty much like, I mean, to be quite frank, it's pretty much gay men and women and women of color, a lot of women of color. Like that was the web team for so long. So I was kind of spoiled in a lot of ways on that. But my experience in particular that I applied um, definitely to the early, well, I mean, I guess even now I still use it or I still benefit from it, but I definitely used it a lot when I was a lawyer was I know I learned how very quickly how to weaponize um, the fact that I was going to be underestimated. It was assumed I didn't know what was happening, that I was the youngest one in the room, that I was not the smartest person in the room, like all of that very early on, like at as an, as an, as an attorney, you know. I didn't go to a, an Ivy League law school. I was a state school kid throughout everything. I was Asian American. I was younger than everyone by a far fetch. Um, I was small, you know, and I talked very colloquially. Like, you know, like I don't sound like <laughs> um, a smart person the way that like smart white people talk at a law at a law firm, you know. But I learned quickly how to weaponize it, and I almost leaned into it. Mm-hmm. I I started you know, uh, going to depositions, like I had this like messenger bag. That was what I wore. People had briefcases and, you know, proper things. I'm like, nope, just rolled up, you know, in wearing Converse and like whatever. And they would think that I was the paralegal. They would be sitting there waiting for the lawyer to show up. And I'm like, nope, that's me. Um, And they would make mistakes Mm -hmm. because they thought that I didn't know I was, you know, outmatched or something. Um, and I think that very early on within tennis, it was kind of a little bit of a similar thing. Like I have, I know I have the ability to be quite invisible if I want to be. And that can be a bad thing when you want visibility and you're not getting it. But again, I just kind of found like, you know, why don't I just use that? Mm-hmm. I'm not a threat, right? Like I'm in the press conference room. I ask my questions a certain way. People think I'm constantly asking softballs, but then you read the actual text of the question they're actually hard-hitting questions that are asking for something deeper. But somehow the player trusts me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm usually the only woman there. I'm, I'm usually, like, not the only woman, but one at least early on, a decade ago I was sometimes, and definitely the person that was most close to their age. You know, so I, I could disarm people I think being quite a female journalist interviewing a female athlete can be a huge advantage. Yeah, um, yep. 100%. Some of the interviews my players have given have been to females, and yeah. Sometimes they feel a lot more comfortable. Not always, but sometimes. Yeah. And yeah, so that's so true. But that, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I think that absolutely 100%, like, you have to have a thick skin. You cannot let the nonsense that you hear, even to this day in the press room, you'll hear the misogyny. You'll hear the way that that, that reporters think that they cover the WTA or the, these players. You hear the way that they are discussed in a sexualized manner uh, when they're out there playing, like, a three and a half hour like physical match and you're like really that's what you're focusing on and you want to just throw a punch you i mean to be quite honest you want you want you get mad you know but you do have to kind of you know step back and and um pick your battles for for you know but at the same time realize where you can 
take advantage of the very things that that people perceive as weaknesses mm-hmm. um and make them and use them you know to to your advantage and a lot of times people don't realize that it's happening and i do think if you're a woman who is very good at her job and very talented then you can stand apart and impress more easily than maybe a male you know of similar talent i do think it can yeah. be an advantage in some situations yeah, in the in the U.S., for example, I remember having this discussion with a a friend of a friend who was um uh, graduated with a law degree in England, and she was a woman of color, and she said she was struggling to find jobs, and she had graduated like with a law degree from like Oxford or Cambridge or something like that, and I was like, dude, in the states, if you're a woman of color that graduated from a top school, you are like sought out. You don't even have to try to get a job. Like they will find you because it is a value to them. So again, it's like. Yeah, it, there are opportunities. Yeah. Like, so it doesn't make sense to just sit and stew and be mad and feel paralyzed and hopeless. Yeah. You just got to dust yourself off and go. Yeah. And to your point, Katie, like you said before, like you were, you know, incredibly motivated, overzealous, hype, you know, like trying to, to break in. That's the energy that uh, that we all need, yeah. to be quite honest, to kind of to, to bust down the doors. I feel like at the end of 2020, maybe we've all lost a little bit of that. <laughs> It's all on a curve, though. It's all on a curve. So everybody's lost energy. I just need to have more energy than that guy. Like <laughs> You have been reinvigorating for us here, Katie, with, with your energy <laughs> and spirit here. So thank you very much for being on. And Sierra people should follow you on Instagram as well for more Best of Five stuff. I'm guessing you're not done with the series. So keep yeah, on coming. Alex up tomorrow. Oh, boy. That's another big one. <laughs> thank you very much. Exciting. Thank you, Katie, for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Spells. So thank you again to Katie Spellman for being on the show. And thank you to all of you for listening to NCR as we begin what is our 10th season now in 2021. We started the show in 2012. We are in our 10th year of doing it. It's been very cool. And a big part of why we are able to continue doing it all this time is the great support we've received on Patreon. We've gotten a bunch of new Patreon support actually since our last episode, our last doubleheader episode. Remember when? Actually, I forgot to thank patrons on the last episode. Apologies for that. If anyone noticed, apologies. We have bunches of new patrons to thank though here. Uh, Michael Blake, Emily Staracina, Stephen Tidings, Deborah Bloom, Matthew Huey, Lucy Kane, Mallory Mappas-Couture, Jonathan Freetheim, Claire, and Dustin Petzl. Also, since it's the first episode of the month, we get to thank all of our backers at the on-tour level. We thank every first show of every month. They are Mallory Mappas Couture, Laura Vergani, Aluko Hope, David Ebershoff, Ken Solomon, Kathleen Sharkey, Stephen Tidings, Danielle Hartzell, Horatio Silva, Annie Kim, J.B. Wogan, James Hindle, Jillian Dobson, Helene DeVitt, Andrew, The Body Serve Podcast, Andrew Eccles, Stephanie Chow, Joy Katz, Greer Millard, Brett Halsey, Ava Marshalkova, John Fisher, Rumdwalv Wong, Elise Panyich, Kate S., Jeremy Blackstock, Dermot Harkin, and Lori Porter. And we thank our Slam Champ episodes we thank on every episode. They are Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Susanna W., Jean Simeon, and Antonio Maycumber, and our GOAT backers, Mike, Nicole Copeland, Pam Shriver, Anna Valinder, and J.O.D. For celebrating one full lap on the uh, the Patreon, the first show we do of February, for our first show there, we're going to thank everybody on our Patreon at any level down to the lowest level once you're here for our one year mark we're going to thank everybody so be be aware for that we'll make sure a couple people have 
flagged when they signed up they didn't want to be thanked i'll try to make sure to get everybody who's on our silent list silent but yeah if you want haven't signed up yet everyone's getting thanked at the beginning of february uh, for all of you on for ncr in this full year this crazy nutty 12 months like i've said courtney and i are not going to australia because of various obvious pandemic things but we will appreciate your uh, support through that time we're going to do i assume daily podcasts again if our if our lives allow uh, so we'll see on that and we thank you very much have a good one bye guys happy new year Праздничный вечер